Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. As we embrace the sustained joy of the Easter season, we invite you to join us every week on this show where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time or catch the encore at 5 p.m. We're also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. We have a great show lined up for you this first Easter week. We have a focus missionary joining us at the bottom of the hour. You're really going to like Anthony Cirillo. He is doing amazing work helping young adults strengthen their Catholic faith, serving as a focus missionary at the University of Cincinnati. But first, we're happy to have Joan Frawley Desmond with us. She's a seasoned journalist who writes for the National Catholic Register. She's been covering several issues lately, including the trend that seems to be coming around the bend, critical race theory coming to a school near you. During the month of March, California's Board of Education approved an ethnic studies model curriculum for kindergarten through 12th grade students denounced as an assault on Christianity. She's here to tell us all about it. Welcome to the show, Joan. Hi, welcome. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's very good to have you. Um, I've been following your work for a long time. You always you always put your finger right on the spot that, that needs to be exposed, that needs to be talked about. And you did that with your recent article in the National Catholic Register, where you wrote about an ethnics studies model that has been approved by the state of California and why this study model is so so pernicious and, and it's um, and what it's what it could lead to, which is scary. Yeah, I mean, honestly, living here in the state where there has been a series of controversial curriculums covering a range of issues, it was very striking to see this one. And it also, as you as you probably know, has gotten national attention. I was reading, of all things, the New York Times uh, columnist Brett Stevens, and he sort of identified the key issues with this so-called model curriculum, which, by the way, was barred the previous year by the governor, even in this very blue state, as too radical. So there were some changes. People said, you know, if you make these changes, it might be okay. But just to cut to the chase, Stevens brought up a couple of points. He said this is not multiculturalism. You know, when you're talking about, in this context, studying so-called ethnic studies, it's not about saying, well, let's really look at Latino culture. Let's, you know, look at the uh, culture of Asians in the state, you know, which is kind of the idea to ostensibly to appreciate and learn more about about these cultures. That's not actually what's happening here. As he describes it, it's less about celebrating America's pluralistic society and actually more of an assault on it. So he describes it as not so much an academic discipline as a recruiting arm of radical ideological movement masquerading as mainstream pedagogy. And he notes that the very opening pages of the model curriculum make clear that students are not just there to learn, they have to, quote, challenge racist, bigoted, discriminatory, imperialistic, colonial beliefs, and then to critique empire building. So, Okay, some of this is just boilerplate. You might say, what does it matter? But they actually have, you know, classroom exercises where people are, are you know, chanting, are really being kind of recruited into some kind of movement with, with their parents having, you know, no clue about this. So why are we concerned? Well, first, we want our children to be taught. We don't want them to be indoctrinated. You know, Catholic education is about the engagement of faith and reason, but also if they're not really getting a, a full education but are just being given talking points, then it's not a true education. And finally, in this model curriculum, they're actually even having uh, lessons attacking Christianity as being um, part of the so-called colonial system, which we thought we had already gotten rid of, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I didn't even think we're in a colonial system. They're arguing that we are, and it needs to be taken down, and then we can return to what they view as a better indigenous uh, belief system. So those are just some key takeaways. And uh, 
I'm surprised it hasn't gotten more attention here, but it has stirred a lot of controversy. I read your piece with a lot of interest for a couple of reasons. Number one, I came to the United States from Mexico as a, a Spanish-speaking child and had to encounter the United States as my new home. And it was a very welcoming home, the United States. I have found it welcoming all my life. And what's, what's lovely about the United States, and I think I can say this as having grown up somewhere else, is that it is a pluralistic society where people live side by side in ways that are vastly different because of their different cultures. And at the same time, there, there are ties that bind us. And what bind us are, is an appreciation of uh, America as uh, this fabulous project that has spurred so much human flourishing and done so much good across the world or a country where every, I can, you know, if you open all the doors to America, it would be flooded with people from all over the world who would love to come and enjoy her bounties, uh, the biggest bounty being freedom. So reading your article and, and really understanding that what they're doing in California is trying to take away that that appreciation of, of the United States as a, as a welcoming pluralistic nation and replace it with an idea of the United States as a, as a colonial, aggressive superpower that has eaten up other cultures just makes me incredibly sad. Yeah, I mean, it is so sad. And, and of course, the contradictions are so present here. Right now, we have people surging at the border. And while we may have our laws about immigration, who can blame them? They're looking for a better life. They, you know, may mm, have true. problems in their own country. So, so the irony is this place that supposedly is so hateful and so awful has uh, attracted people and continues to attract people. And my fear definitely is that our system educationally is being used to create a very hostile environment, not only for how people see the country, but how they see each other, you know, rather than overcoming whatever vestiges of racism may still be with us, rather than overcoming that, they're actually heightening differences and creating more hostility and fear, fear that, you know, everybody is viewing you only through this racial lens, which is just exactly what we want to try to overcome, not reinforce. There's also... There's also this sad uh, thing that they're they're creating is an idea that there are only two types of people, victims and perpetrators. And yeah. we're teaching our children that they fall into one or the other camp, depending on the color of their skin or their background. This makes no sense from an American perspective. Children aren't either victims or perpetrators. That's crazy. And, and people come from different backgrounds. People are mixed now in their backgrounds. How can you point to one person and say, you come from perpetrators, you're an oppressor, you're, you're an oppressor race? People don't even have these clear-cut races anymore in their families. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, you know, I'm Irish Catholic. I have three grandparents from Ireland. I'm a first-generation American. I have a Nicaraguan grandmother, and our family has done some of the 23andMe. We do have some indigenous DNA, probably from my grandmother's side, as long, along with European traces. And my husband is especially proud of the fact uh, that he doesn't have too much Neanderthal. <laughs> <laughs> but, but so... I completely agree with you. And so the whole thing, I, you have to feel at some level there's some kind of real uh, manipulative political recruiting machine going on here, that it's not simply about education, that people are looking for bodies to, to join a movement. Mm-hmm. People, you know, make that choice freely and openly to, to embrace a movement. That's that's their, their right. But, you know, for children very young being told that this is the way things are and this is their education. And the other point I note, for example, is that there's a, a big proportion of Christians in the state. Uh, many are Latino. And of course, some English is not their first language. I'm even concerned about what they even know their children are being taught. So here they are trying to embrace the American dream. And what are their children being taught? What are they learning in school about their faith, about their family's heritage, about America, this this land of opportunity they've arrived in? So I, you know, I think it's also can pit parent against child. Mm-hmm. And, sure. You know, I think this is another issue. I mean, moving on a little bit. So the fact that parents don't seem to have gotten much, uh, much impact on this. It, they didn't, they weren't really widely consulted. This was done through the Board of Education. There were legislators involved. And I think this, doesn't this speak to a separate issue, which is, but related, which is the power dynamics for parents. I think there's been a shift away from moral teaching centered in the home 
home to the school to playing this role rather than the school in tandem with the parent, right, in the mm-hmm. public sector. Obviously, Catholic schools are a little bit different. And there was a time when the school used to be concerned about what the parents thought and making sure that the parents, you know, were on board with everything. Now, the parent may actually be concerned about what the school is teaching and be fearful even of challenging that in our cancel culture. You make another point to this, which is in your article that there's a religious component to it. That right. uh, And this is important because many of us are teaching our children to abide by the faith of, of our fathers of, and, and, and bringing them up in a certain faith. For Latinos, uh, it's usually Catholic and or Protestant, but mostly Christian. And uh, there's a part of, of the curriculum that you talk about in California where the students are taught to chant religious invocations to Aztec gods like Quetzalcoatl, Huitzilopochtli, and uh, Chipetotec. And these were gods that nobody worships anymore that I know of, and also were gods that, uh, in, that induced the Aztecs to commit horrible crimes of human sacrifice child sacrifice by the thousands like that was the practice of of that religion it's a wonderful thing that that religion was obliterated by christianity and why are we and you say in the actually brett stevens said in his article he said presumably the schools would be prohibited from leading state sanctioned chants to the Aztec god of human sacrifice, much as they are prohibited from leading state sanctioned Christian prayers. Right, right. I think that actually was Christopher Rufo um, from the uh, Ah, Discovery. But yes, yes, exactly. And I think this is going to be really key going forward is to see, I mean, we're both, you know, well aware of work um, on religious freedom issues through Beckett and the Alliance of Defending Freedom. I would not be surprised if this was taken up once people once this actually you know develops some traction the model curriculum and moves ahead if this kind of thing happens people definitely could challenge it in court i did try to reach out to get some thoughts from legal experts on this and I think they're they're reserving judgment. They haven't seen the curriculum, so they're not sure. But that's what people think could happen. You know, once you move from a general study of culture to actually having children chant prayers in another uh, for another religion, you are now violating you know the establishment clause, among other things. So I think it could end up in court for sure. And again, I just think you know, can you imagine? And here you have these parents at home living their faith, and then their children are are being taught to hate the faith in school, and the parents may not even be aware this is happening. And again, I mean, what I worry about, too, is with this whole idea you've seen in the last year, students starting to call out parents on things, uh, calling out fellow classmates on things. I mean, would the parent themselves feel under threat by their child who's been indoctrinated? Is that something that could happen down the road? I don't want to, you know, make people more fearful than they need to be. But these are legitimate questions given the way the culture is going. And this is not the way we should be going at all. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm talking to Joan Frawley Desmond. She's a senior editor and writer for the National Catholic Register, telling us all about a very scary curriculum that was just approved in California on critical race theory. You know, Joan, you mentioned in the beginning of our talk that this isn't happening only in public schools. And unfortunately, that's been my experience. And also I've read of other parents' experience that it is uh, also happening in private schools and the parents are feeling just as powerless as the parents of the public school students. Yeah, I I think we're seeing that across a number of curriculums. And, you know, in some ways, I think it all goes back to, I mean, I think two things have happened. You did have parents, I've been thinking about this today in anticipation of our conversation. I remember hearing from teachers who said, it's really frustrating. Parents are so focused on their kids in, in a bad way, like little Johnny can do no wrong, that when the teacher says little Johnny has a problem, the parent says, no, they don't. Now, where that came from, I'm not sure if it was guilt or like the parents didn't feel they were good enough parents so they didn't they wanted to be overly protective whatever the reason that was that created one kind of problem from what had largely been a kind of collaborative effort of teacher of teachers and parents with the parent being the final arbiter now we're at the other and which is the parent worried about what the teacher will think, what the school will think, how the parent themselves could be potentially perceived as outliers in the school community. 
And so what are some of the key issues? I think predating this this issue of, of you know, ethnic studies and critical race theory is sex ed. Sex ed was a big one where there was a lot of debate and controversy over what that should be. And schools in some places really just imposed it and you either accept it or you don't. You, I have looked at private schools where I looked at their sex ed program and I thought, well, I'm not going to do this. But I've ended up at Catholic schools where they were teaching things I wasn't comfortable with. I told them about it. I could remove my child in some cases, but I wasn't able to prevail in terms of changing the curriculum. So that's, you know, I'm paying for something where I'm not entirely happy with it. I guess we all accept some of that. But I think then we've moved on to gender studies, and now we're at race studies. And all of this just seems like polarizing, fragmenting, and creating more fear and mistrust among Americans and among teachers and parents and children and parents. It's, it's not a good path. Well, what's really scary about critical race theory is that it's a racialist theory. It's a racialist idea that, mm -hmm. uh, as we said before, that people are either victims or perpetrators of oppression. And it's, uh, it's being taught to our children at every level even in private schools. I Let me share a story with you. Recently, my, my son, who's at the University of Pennsylvania, but he's been home, he's a junior, but so he's been home for over a year now because of the pandemic. He's been taking classes from home. So his father and I have been able to listen in on his classes. And it doesn't matter what the subject is. There's a constant preoccupation on race, mm -hmm. even in mathematics, in anything. It doesn't have to have, it has nothing, to, it doesn't have anything to do with the subject, but everything is looked at through the, this lens of, of race and with the idea that some races are good and some races are bad. Obviously, my, my son is a Hispanic growing up in the United States. He's, he's a little sensitive to that because he has a lot of people of different races that he considers all very good and he doesn't like, right. to, doesn't like to see that being spread. So recently, they were discussing some piece uh, written by by some author and they were discussing the material and it was interest it was an interesting discussion I was listening because I'm interested and at the end of the discussion the teacher said any other comments and one young man said we need to remember that this piece was written we need to we need to notice that this piece was written by a 71 year old white male so everything that he states needs to be looked at through the lens of privilege and mm -hmm. and he said and discounted Oh, gosh. Uh-huh. And the teacher agreed with him. And I was, I, I couldn't, I was beside myself. And I said to my son, say something. That's, that's racist. And he said, are you crazy, mom? I, I can't say anything. I'll be drummed out of school. I'll be drummed out of my jobs, my possible jobs, and all my friendships and all my social interactions. Yeah, I mean, honestly, a child, I don't know how old your son is, but a child at that age, losing that sense of freedom and kind of give and take in the classroom that he can't do this, this climate of fear of not being woke enough, you know, it's almost like you're training people for a cult or something. Um, yes. So I, I really agree with you. I think this is a, a very serious problem. And I do think parents, to some degree, you know, we parents have to decide how we're going to model, model this for our children. And I don't think it's an easy call to make, right? Mm -hmm. But it's something we have to look for big and small ways where we can model a different way of reacting, of being who we are, of standing up for the good things in our country, as well as encouraging a very proper you know, critique of things that need to be changed. Every culture needs to be reformed, but it has to be done in a way that is not so extremely polarizing and politicizing. I do some work with women who are in halfway houses, and I've grown very close to one woman. She is a, a black woman, was a, from a military family. She got into drugs and uh, very sad, but she, she's starting life over. She's gone back to school, and she was doing a community college program, which again has also adopted this whole ethnic curriculum. So it already in California had happened at the college level and it's now being brought down to the high school and elementary level. Well, she's taking an English course and I, I love English and I'm a writer. And I said, oh, you know, tell me what you're learning. She said, well, this class is on the majoritarian writers and the counter-majoritarian writers. I could imagine what this was based on what we're talking about. I said, so what does that mean? She said, well, the majoritarian person is a white person of privilege, so we're reading their their work from this lens, and then we're going to read the counter-majoritarian writer um, and the writing from their lens. And I said, you know what? I just finished a book by Charles Dickens, which is an indictment of the legal system called Bleak House, 
and it actually includes people at the top of the heap and people at the bottom people that the people that were ill served by the by a, a justice system which just like today has its problems and needs to be reformed and this white author managed to incorporate the experiences of people across all class lines because he was a truly great writer and he you can even walk and chew gum at the same time so i said please don't assume that it's impossible for a writer as a human being to understand or inhabit different worlds that's what a great writer does but i thought how sad here she is rebuilding her life you know come, going back to school and she's being told that she has to go different places to get the truth and you can't expect a white writer to have a truthful depiction of reality likewise the black author has to have their point of view and they can't possibly share any experiences that the a white person might have which is ridiculous as well right <laughs> no, so so you're talking about uh, people being balkanized and separated into slots and being told that if you're in one slot you better not look over into the other slot because your ideas your pre- everything will be a presumption everything will be false right. How terrible. What a terrible destruction of the beauty of, of English literature, that this is how it's going to be approached. I know. And here she is, you know, on the cusp of a new life. And I'm thinking to myself, how does this kind of poison her sense of who she is and where she's going? If she's thinking everyone's looking at her only as a black woman, like, oh, she's a black woman. Uh, I don't like black people. That part in itself is sad when she needs all the confidence she can have to move forward. And she is getting help. You know, it's even contradicting the reality of the help she's receiving, including from, you know, white volunteers like myself, right? I mean, it's the last thing I want her to feel. Um, I didn't challenge it directly other than talking about literature, but it did make me really sad because she may think this is what she needs to learn as an educated person, right? It will embitter her appreciation of all the goodness in life that comes from outside of the black culture. Yeah, I mean, and just the fact that we all have so much to share. I was listening recently to a really beautiful documentary on Martin Luther King and his interest in jazz and the role of music in the civil rights movement, and as well as the, the courageous people that stood up for black rights, you know, like Marian Anderson, who had to cross the color line, one, you know, was an opera singer and was first denied access to uh, uh, auditoriums to sing and finally people uh, people overcame that and that was a, a broad started with black leaders but it became a broad multiracial effort you know for for civil freedom to conquer the one original sin america has had that was in stand in such such extreme contradiction to our republic and in and its mission in the world and 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 here in this in this country so uh it was very touching it was completely accessible to me as as somebody who wasn't black to share their story of struggle their music to appreciate this music separate from any political issue you know i'm not virtue signaling i love this music you know <laughs> and and i just thought how sad that it all has to be so so kind of toxic and and um and people are going to go to their corners so i hope i hope we can overcome this really and i think that's where we need to focus now i think parents teachers of goodwill um administrators politicians we need to say this is not what america is it's not about you know gra you know attacking each other it's not about putting each other in in pigeonholes it's about you know creating the society we were meant to be and we're far from perfect but we're on a good path and and we need to stick with that so i hope you can find a way to do that and i think we need many more open forums to discuss this kind of thing mm -hmm. we need to sing the beauties of the america that we know yeah i totally agree so let's maybe i mean one thing i'm just thinking is uh, you know having talked about this with my own kids who are older they're in their 20s and and early 30s so it's more of an issue like could these kind of issues come up at work they've already completed graduate degrees and all and for the most part they haven't really encountered this too much but still like looking for opportunities to stand up uh, for what you believe and not sort of 
run and hide, um, fearful you're going to be called out for something you haven't even done or, or even thought. <laughs> yeah, well, sadly, the when you get tarred, uh, you get tarred with a brush of racism. And that is apparently something that uh, people can't recover from professionally. It's, it's, a very, it's very sad that that fear exists of being accused of something so evil as racism. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's going to be important um, as we move forward. I think there's some reasonable ways where people are reacting to the events of the past year the death of George Floyd and looking in their own institutions to make sure that they're addressing things properly. I think what would be a mistake is if, if you know, this the drumbeat of equity, uh, diversity and inclusion becomes um, just a, a, a way of shutting down discussion, a way of, of balkanizing things, as you say. And um, I know my old, my old Catholic high school, Dominican school, it's not Dominican now, but I just uh, got word that they have uh, provided new policies on, on these issues of inclusion and all. And I'm really hoping that they're, you know, really strong, good policies that really reflect our traditions and not those that have become overly politicized. Mm-hmm. And traditions that unify, right? Not that separate. Oh, exactly. You know, it's interesting. We were at a school that was certainly majority white when I was there, but the president of the day students was an African-American woman and others were were there, too. I'm sure some of them may have felt like we were white people of privilege, but but I was looking back. I was really happy to see that whatever whatever we came from and whatever blinders we may have had in some ways, it was a boarding school, so it was more privileged, that we were still able to really raise up people of a variety of different races in our midst and, and recognize who they were and, you know, elect them to office and celebrate their leadership. Well, I think uh, that your hope, your hopefulness is infectious, Joan, and uh, we have to, all of us as a country, pray. Pray for unity and for a lot of love across across all these difficult aisles that that we have in our in our midst so thank you so much joan for uh, joining us today and thank you for all your wonderful work and your wisdom that you share with us and please listeners you can catch uh, joan's work at the national catholic register that's ncregister.com and joan i wish you and your family a happy easter season thank you Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're delighted to have with us a focused missionary, Anthony Cirillo. He's at the University of Cincinnati, working with some wonderful Catholic students there. Welcome to the show, Anthony. Thanks for having me, doctor. Maybe a lot of our listeners know what focus is, but maybe some don't. So can you explain to us what focus is? Yeah, absolutely. So focus stands for the Fellowship of Catholic University Students, and I'm a full-time Catholic missionary to college students. And I serve on one campus at the University of Cincinnati. And we actually serve over 160 campuses uh, around the U.S. and a few in Europe. So, wow, 160. Yeah, a little bit more than that. Now, you, you say you're a mission. Do you wear a robe or do you look like everyone else? <laughs> yeah, I just wear rags everywhere. No, <laughs> I look very much like everybody else. I'm actually married. I have three children. I'm a 28 years old. I'm yeah, just a lay person, fully on mission to these students. Uh, I'm a little bit older for our missionaries at this point because I've been doing this for, for seven years. But it's been a huge blessing and been an amazing way that the Lord's used me and worked in my life as well. So this is a tremendous commitment for a young married man with three children. It sure is. Yeah, but we eased our way in. I started off not married and got married my time as a missionary and we started our family on mission. And it's not what I would have sketched out, but boy, the Lord has provided and uh, he's really used our vocation as well uh, and leveraged that in the mission you know, on campus. So better than I could have ever imagined. Wow. You know, your life, that the way that you're living, it must be such a testament to the students that you evangelize. I certainly hope so. <laughs> My wife hopes so as well. It's a joy, you know, to be able to to bring in college students into our home. They get to 
see me. You know, the thing, the bread and butter things that we do are, are we mentor students, we lead Bible studies, we meet students where they're at on campus. When I have Bible study, you know, it's it's so often over at my home, in my living room. Usually, you know, one of them for the past couple of years is right after I put my kids to bed. You know, I kind of roll out of roll out of putting my kids to bed and come downstairs, and usually there's a group of guys there on a Thursday night ready to read the Bible and pray together. What kind of hunger do you feel on campus amongst young people for God? I think there's a hunger for for something true, mm-hmm. for something that that matters. I think there is. I think everyone has that hunger for God in some way, mm-hmm. but we try to fill it in many other ways, especially, you know, the college campus, you know, there's just the, you know, many different stereotypes, you know, things that we try to fill that, that God-sized hole with, you know, we're hungry for, for that living water that Jesus talks about in John chapter four, but a lot of the students, you know, might be filling it with something else, whether that's, you know, alcohol, drugs, sex, or even just like an addiction to success. But it is, I think it is all pointing to, to wanting something more, wanting something that, that's going to persist forever, that's going to matter, desire for, for intimate relationships. And you see, yeah, how that, the desire for intimacy can get skewed, can be, draw people to, to things that are not good or, or kind of twisted. What about a desire for things that are wholesome and pure in a world that doesn't, doesn't give us, doesn't reflect that back to us? I think there, that is a desire deep down. What I've found on campus with many people, we'll talk about, say, relationships. Because when you use those words, I think about like dating relationships, for instance. And, and I think there is the desire for, for young people to have this, yeah, that this wholesome, pure, true love. In pursuit of that, they might be settling for less. Mm-hmm. Whether that's, you know, a hookup culture, or that's settling for, you know, that boyfriend or girlfriend that they just think, oh, yeah, maybe they'll just change or I can change them. And, and you know, they make all these different concessions. But I think deep down there, there is that a desire for something good, true, beautiful, which, you know, is, comes from our creator, from God. And, and I think, you know, for my vocation, serving as a, a married missionary, not that we are by, by no means a perfect family, <laughs> no <laughs> means, but to, to show the students a little bit of our vocation, whether it's inviting them over for dinner or later tonight, I have people over to pray the rosary. We just do like a rosary and kind of like a meditation on Tuesday nights now. They get to, you know, come into our messy house, which we try to clean up. But, you know, if three small children, we don't, maybe you don't get everything picked up. We invite them into that. And, you know, my wife will pray the rosary with us. And so they can kind of see, wow, this is a, these are, you know, some 28 year olds who have kids and are praying the rosary with, you know, college students and sharing, you know, life with college students. So we can kind of show them, I think sometimes like it is possible to, yeah, be in a faithful marriage with children that can be stressful. It can be hard, but it's really, really beautiful. So that's a great testament, a great witness that you give to young people to invite them into your home and see a young marriage and a young united marriage, a a marriage united around God. And when so many young people, as we know, come from broken homes, they've never had that model to aspire to. Yeah, certainly. I mean, we've we've just seen it in even just other missionaries. You know, we've had I had a teammate a couple of years ago and she became my teammate right after we got married. And I remember she asked my wife at a dinner early in the year, you know, we'd been married only a few months. She said, she's like, how are you guys married? And I remember hearing this and I was like, ouch, like, I know I married up. I know. <laughs> but like, ooh, that really stung. And in what actually the, the backstory to that was, was she had come from a, you know, a tough, a tough home environment, you know, where, where there was a, the marriage ended. You know, there was a divorce. And, and so she wasn't asking how did this guy, you know, get married to this gorgeous, amazing woman so much as it was, how are you actually living this vocation? I don't mm. think this is possible. And I, and I do remember, thanks be to God, you know, two years later, and this is a teammate who, you know, we spent a lot of time with together. She was there when our oldest uh, was born, you know, just in the hospital back in those pre-COVID days where you could have a bunch of people yeah. visit you in the hospital. <laughs> but I remember my teammate, you know, at the end of her time, and we were a team together for two years, she remarked that, you know, now the vo- she saw that vocation as possible. And the vocation of marriage is possible and attractive. And and now I think she hasn't got married yet, but she's engaged. And, and it's just like, wow, like we got to play a little bit of a role there that the Lord used us. We didn't, you know, we didn't sketch it out like, oh, we're going to make sure we invest in her and she'll have this, you know, conversion or something necessarily, but we're just going to love her and, you know, invite her into our home life. And, and then the Lord did the heavy lifting. So it was awesome. I remember being a college student and I remember being very lonely sometimes. And my own mm-hmm. children who've gone to college or are in college now talk about their loneliness. How big a factor do you think loneliness is in in college students' lives? I think it's huge. I mean, especially even before 
COVID. You know, even before this, the the social isolation, I think there's like something in the air that they're breathing. That's like, if I don't live a certain way, if I'm not going out with everybody, if I'm in my if I'm in my room alone on a Friday night, that is the worst thing ever. And I think there's kind of can be this illusion that in order to have friends in college, you have to partake in, in certain uh activities we'll say like whether it's drugs alcohol going out you know and i think like a joy in part of my job is is showing the student like hey there's is connecting people i, I love connecting people. It's showing that student who says man i don't got anything to do friday night like i guess i have no, no other choice but to either sit in my room and twiddle my thumbs or go hit the bars with my fake id <laughs> and say actually you know what we actually are trying to create something different over here that's attractive and that doesn't just have drug sex and alcohol you know mm-hmm. that's been that's been another just joy where it's like you can live fully alive without these substances and yeah for like students who are of age let's talk about you know how we can have a drink and not get drunk and and what does sobriety actually mean or what does chastity actually mean like we can really lean into those conversations but yeah totally the college campus can be this place where yeah everybody is i'm surrounded by people but i feel so alone there can be many different reasons to that many college campuses have catholic Mm -hmm. student centers newman centers do you work with them or is this a complete separate thing or do you inhabit separate areas of, of the, sort of that yeah. campus Catholic life? That's a that's a great question. The way that we work with, with Focus is we always want to partner with that campus ministry on the ground. We don't want to create a separate mm-hmm. thing. We, we want to add and like supplement what they have going on and just make it better. Uh, we want to like broaden their reach, hopefully. You know, we aren't we aren't going to create events that are like going to rival the Newman Center's events. But we might, we also want to bring people to the Newman Center. We want to bring them to Mass. And maybe we also want to like make some of those events better sometimes. Maybe there's like a suggestion a missionary can make. Say, hey, like if we thought about doing this, maybe this could help us reach more people on campus. So we very much want to come in and respect and honor what's been going on at the Newman Center and then say, how can we help? How can we add here? Never want to become like like a competitor. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Anthony Cirillo. He's a focus missionary at the University of Cincinnati. Anthony, recently over 175 students from the Archdiocese of Cincinnati attended Seek 21. I know that Father Mike Schmitz, who was a guest with us recently, mm-hmm. gave an amazing message. How did it go over this year with the pandemic and the change that you had to, I know that the format had to change significantly. Yeah, I mean, so Seek 21, you know, if we rewind pre-COVID, Seek 21 was going to be in St. Louis and we were hoping to have, you know, gosh, probably close to 30,000 people together over the new year, you know, reigning in 2021, but obviously COVID changed that. Yeah, thanks be to God, like you said, we we actually have three campuses with focus in the Archdiocese here and through some planning and some creative planning and collaboration with the Archdiocese, we were able to kind of do a remote Seek 21, where Seek 21 this year was around anyone could go around the globe because it was virtual but we said we want to create that conference experience to the as best we can in the safest way we can we want to create that in cincinnati for our students and and by the grace of god we had yeah it's like 175 students from from cincinnati coming together from mass to watch different keynotes you know to stream them for us you know the particular our campus at the university of cincinnati we actually had an opening night at a local brewery like a catholic owned brewery down the street we just partnered with them. We're like, can we stream this and then have all our people come here? They're named Humble Monk Brewery. So if you're in Cincinnati, check out Humble Monk. <laughs> really, really good. <laughs> so yeah, I, we made the best of it. And it was it was a lot to pull together, but it was, it was extremely enjoyable. And students who would not have maybe traveled with us to St. Louis to go to like a normal seek in the past years, they were like, well, I can stay in Cincinnati. I can pay to go to this. And then I'm going to go to a, this brewery one night for the keynotes. You know, we're watching Sister Miriam and... Bishop Barron is, you know, they're being streamed up on the wall of this brewery and we are hanging out having pizza and, you know, people are of age and having beers. How much fun. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Like we're, we're just grateful that, you know, we had so much support from our local supporters and from, from the Bishop and from our chaplains to, to pull something off. that was really special. One of the other highlights of it is we had an adoration night. So usually at seek at these seek conferences, they're usually every year and they're usually in, you know, one location and then everyone from around the country gathers together and you'll have these masses with 10,000 college students or 20,000 college students at mass together in one spot. And we'll also have these adoration nights where it's, you know, adoration and then confession being offered. And usually, you know, you're in a huge, you know, conference center and thousands of people are in adoration together in front of our Lord. We couldn't quite do that, but we had, we actually had it downtown here at the cathedral. We were able to rally, you know, local priests and say, Hey, we got, you know, hopefully 200 students coming in. 
we'd love for everyone to be able to go to confession that night. So we, with our chaplains, we rallied, you know, like 15 priests and then, you know, all these students could go to confession. And some of them, some of them went for the first time. Some of them went to adoration for the first time. And what, like, what a gift, you know, these sacraments are in our faith. And it's, you know, I get to introduce students to these sacraments. I get to help them, you know, find the Lord in these ways. It's, it's a joy. People who at at that age go to college, they're like sponges. They're at the age where you are ready to change and grow and become how wonderful that they have people like you helping them to grow and change and become more like christ yeah i hope so (laughs) it's yeah i I hope that's it's all that we want these days of cancel culture and ideological division and political division Mm -hmm. have you felt that the things got a little dicey on the ground at the university of cincinnati or do you always feel that you're operating in a in a welcoming space that's a great question i think with COVID, some of those like places where we would face outright like opposition at a public university, just like students aren't really there right now. So whether that's like, like here we have online classes and, you know, a lot of people aren't just walking around outside, even though it's a gorgeous day, it's just not as much like foot traffic on campus. And that would be where we sometimes would run into those, you know, more like aggressive, like atheists or things like that. I'd say here, you know, students overall are really open to talking, really open to conversation. A lot of people were raised Catholic. So I think that's a great opportunity. You know, we talk about like the new evangelization. It's it's really that re-evangelization of areas that had been evangelized when John Paul talks about that. So yeah, I say people are really open. Yeah, we haven't actually faced like a ton of like aggressive uh, opposition. However, there there is like a lot of just people just don't care. You know, it's just, oh yeah, whatever. Like, you know, I'll do that later. You know, I think relativism, you know, is still just so rampant. It's like, oh, that's great. That's your truth. Oh, yeah. You know, this is my truth. And, and you know, if sometimes just people don't even want to really talk about that. It's just a kind of a lazy, like, yep, yeah, you got your opinion. I got mine. Leave me alone, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I mean, sometimes I wish, oh, I just say I wish we had more of the people that are like, hey, I'm going to plant my feet in the ground and I'm going to push against you. I'm going to say, hey, you're, you're absolutely wrong. And I'd rather have that discussion than the like, eh, like whatever, you believe that, I believe this. Oh, you know? I, I agree, right? Because it's in the discussion and the dialogue that, that you can yeah. open minds. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So. And hearts, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Lord, You just let the Lord come into that and, and just through friendship and, and charity, you know, hopefully that's a powerful witness. And, and then, yeah, if you, if you have that opportunity to like logically try to walk through a few things with people, that's great. But usually it takes, a, it takes a while. It's not one conversation, as I'm sure you know. Anthony, people who are listening who maybe have a kid in college, how do they find out more about Focus? How can they point people towards you? And also, mm-hmm. before, before we get off, I want to hear yeah. about how you're funded and how we can help you. Oh, sure. Yeah, thanks. So I'd say if, yeah, if you want to learn more about Focus, I would just go to, you know, www.focus.org, F-O-C-U-S dot O-R-G. And you can, yeah, learn a lot about the campuses we serve. There's a tab that says find a campus and you can just basically search by state for a campus that we serve at. If you are searching and you don't see that campus that maybe your child or grandchild's going to. There's another resource called the Digital Campus, which is like we have missionaries in Denver and across the country that will invest in students uh, digitally and, and just reach out to them and uh, mentor them from a distance. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, we've yeah, there's been so many opportunities to just try to innovate, and I think COVID too has just pushed the envelope on innovating, especially in that digital space. Very true. Um, yeah, and I'd say too, like if you also see a campus, you don't see a campus on there, start praying that you know we get to that campus, or you know if you have a connection to the campus or a connection somewhere, like ask the question, hey, like I heard about this thing, Focus, like why doesn't you know this university have it? Like maybe knock on a door and, and ask the question. Yeah, that, that's been that's how I'm here <laughs> at Cincinnati. <laughs> is a whole other story so and how can um, how can people um donate to this great cause because i'm i'm assuming yes. i'm assuming this is uh kept alive on d- donations and people being generous all across the country a hundred percent i mean we we i would say i don't just like i thrive on support we ser- we not only survive we want to thrive on the support and that's that's really what that looks like for every missionary as a team of dozens of uh, individuals and families who are praying for that missionary and financially giving to support 
the whole budget of that missionary, the salary, and then all the, the stuff that they need to buy on campus or mm-hmm. everything. It's everything. So the way you can support a missionary is you could also just go to, again, like focus.org. And then you could just say, find a missionary. And then if you know a missionary, or you could look up me, for instance, with just Anthony Cirillo, C-I-R-I-L-L-O. And we have all of our support pages and you can make like an, um, a special gift or like a monthly gift um, to fuel our mission. If you even have a campus near you, say, you know, you have that a child or grandchild that's going to campus, you know, nearby and you want to support that team, you can look up that campus. And there's even a way to give to a particular like team through our website, focus.org. So that's pray for us and then like give and then spread the word. Cause so many people don't know that we're on 160 campuses. They don't know that we have over 800 missionaries serving on those campuses that it's really in some, some areas of the country focus is one of the best kept secrets of the church. I'm a little biased, you know, being a on, on campus missionary, but, but Anthony, Anthony, I, I'm a hundred percent sure that you're doing tremendous work and exactly where you need to be, which is with the, with the youth, the future of our country, the future of our faith. How wonderful that people like you are available for them. And I, and I urge my listeners, uh, go to focus.org and donate. Find Anthony Cirillo or one of his brother missionaries or sister missionaries. You have girl, you have yeah. women too, right? Yes, men and women. Yep. Okay. Each, each team is about two men and two women usually. Oh, well, wonderful. So please mm-hmm. go to uh, focus.org and help these wonderful young people out. Thank you, Anthony, for joining Thank us. Thank you very much, Doctor. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us. It's a dialogue that happened in the night Jesus triumphantly rose from the dead. It's a colloquy that reveals Jesus' true priorities, why he entered the world, why he suffered, why he died, why he rose. He did it all to impart divine mercy. And as we prepare to celebrate Divine Mercy Sunday, the exclamation point of the Easter octave, let us enter much more into that great mystery and gift. On Easter Sunday evening, Jesus walked through the closed doors of the upper room where the apostles were huddling together out of fear and said to them, Shalom, peace be with you. Jesus had come from heaven to earth and given his life to grant us that peace. But it was a special kind of peace, one the world can't give or take away. Not as the world gives peace do I give it, Jesus had said during the Last Supper. The peace Jesus leaves and gives is not the mere absence of war or conflict, but a definitive peace treaty with God through the forgiveness of sins. Without this type of peace, no other form can endure, because it's sin that destroys interior peace, the peace of families, the peace of friendships, the peace of community, even the peace of nations. And so Jesus, wasting absolutely no time to set the next stage of his peace plan in motion, on the night he rose from the dead, the first thing he did was divinely empower the apostles as his peacemakers to bring that gift and the joy to which it leads to the ends of the earth. It's important for us to pay close attention to the various steps Jesus took so that we can understand better the divine foundation of the sacrament of his mercy, better explain it to those who have been poorly catechized about the sacrament, or claim that they can confess their sins to God alone without the sacrament. Jesus began by saying to the apostles, Just as the Father sent me, so I send you. We know that the Father had sent Jesus as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And Jesus was sending his apostles to continue that saving mission of taking away the world's sins. Since we know that God alone can forgive sins against him, a point made by some Pharisees after Jesus had healed the sins of the paralyzed man before he cured his paralysis, Jesus needed to impart to the apostles that same divine power. So he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. He gave them God the Holy Spirit so that they could forgive sins in God's name. Just as we hear every time the priest pronounces those beautiful words in the sacrament of penance, God the Father of mercies, through the death and resurrection of his Son, has sent the Holy Spirit among us for the forgiveness of sins. And then Jesus did something that refers to the essential structure of the sacrament of reconciliation. He said, Those who sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Those who sins you retain are retained. Since Jesus didn't give the apostles the capacity to read hearts and souls, the only way they and their successors and priestly collaborators would be able to know which sins to forgive or retain would be if people told them. And that's what happens in the sacrament of confession. 
It's so fitting that Jesus established the sacrament of mercy on Easter Sunday evening because he wanted to link the joy of his resurrection to the joy of forgiveness. Jesus had pointed to the connection between the two when he gave us the unforgettable parable of the prodigal son. When the lost son returns to the father to give his rehearsed speech of repentance, the father interrupted him and erupted with happiness that his son was dead and had been brought to life again. This parable, which is about what happens in the sacrament of penance, points to the truth that every reconciliation is a resurrection. In every good confession, a son or daughter who is dead comes to life again, healed of sins both mortal and venial, and made fully alive once more in Christ Jesus. That's why it's so fitting that the Easter octave concludes with Divine Mercy Sunday. In the great jubilee of redemption in the year 2000, St. John Paul II established this feast for the Sunday after Easter so that all of us could thank God for the gift of his merciful love that led him to stop at nothing in order to save us from our sins, from the eternal death to which our sins lead. St. John Paul announced the establishment of the feast during the canonization of St. Faustina Kowalska, the humble Polish sister to whom, in a series of profound mystical experiences during the 1930s, Jesus revealed the depths of his merciful love for the human race and his desire for all people to recognize our need for his mercy, to trust in it, to come to receive it, and to share it with others. We don't have time to cover this devotion approved by the Church in depth, but it features five elements that Christ revealed to St. Faustina so that we would be able to grow in our appreciation of and transformation through divine mercy. To stop each day at 3 p.m. when Christ breathed his last on Calvary to employ his his mercy and bring him our prayers. To venerate him in the image of divine mercy by which Jesus, risen from the dead, blesses us and asks us to trust in him. To pray the chaplet of divine mercy offering God the Father, Jesus, in the Eucharist and begging Him on account of His Son's passion for mercy on the whole world. Praying a novena starting from Good Friday in which we bring to Jesus various groups of people in need of His mercy. And finally, on Divine Mercy Sunday, when we celebrate the end of the Easter octave and ponder in the Gospel, Jesus' establishment of the sacrament of His mercy on Easter Sunday evening, we grow in grateful need of that gift. Each of these five nourishes Our appreciation deepens our recognition of our need for, spurs us to come to receive, and helps us to learn how to share the riches of God's mercy we first receive. Please permit me a personal word about God's mercy. This past Wednesday, the best confessor I ever had and knew, a good friend, Father Joseph Henchy, a priest of the Congregation of the Sacred Stigmata, died at the age of 91 in Chicago. He was a tremendous priest, someone whom Cardinal Timothy Dolan of New York and Bishop Robert Barron have both called one of their great spiritual heroes. He likewise was one of mine. He was a tremendous theologian, having taught at the Angelicum in Rome for many years, and was a much sought-after retreat master for priests, religious seminarians, and lay people. But his real genius was as a spiritual director and a confessor. When he was at the North American College in Rome when I was a seminarian, he would open his door at 4 a.m. for seminarians who wanted to see him for some quick words of encouragement or for confession to be able to find him. Those office hours became so popular that the seminary ended up building a confessional in the chapel where he would hear confessions there. I remember going once to him to confess in the morning. I don't remember what sins I had, but I was very sorrowful for them, and that sorrow came forth. Father Henchy's reply I've never forgotten. Roger, we give thanks to God for the graces he has given you to make such a good confession. This whole experience of God's loving mercy for you will make you a good and merciful confessor. Let God make these sins happy faults to help you help others rejoice in so great a Redeemer. That experience of the joy of being forgiven of God's wanting to bring good even out of the evil I had committed I've never forgotten, and I've always tried to hear others' confessions, as Father Henchy used to hear mine. Please entrust him with me to our merciful Redeemer, that the measure with which Father Henchy measured out God's mercy will be measured back to him. This Divine Mercy Sunday is an opportunity for all of us to give God thanks for his mercy that endures forever, to be grateful for good confessors, and to veil ourselves more fully of the means God has given for us to come to receive his mercy, be filled with it, 
so that we might share it with others to overflowing. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 